Inside the Adventure, episode number 70, with Doug Heinrich. If you've ever been afraid to step outside your comfort zone, then you're in the right place. Inside the Adventure features incredible athletes and everyday people sharing their epic stories of pushing life to its limits. Get ready to be inspired, face your fears, and take action with your host, Marshall Mosier. What's up, guys, and welcome to another episode of Inside the Adventure. This is your host, Marshall Mosher, and today we're going to hear the story of Doug Heinrich, the Senior Vice President of Product at Black Diamond. In 1974, Doug was introduced to climbing when he was only 12 years old by one of his classmates. Early on, he took climbing lessons with Jim Dockery, a local legend, and during his first year in climbing, he achieved the summit of the Grand Teton on a guided climb, quickly developing an interest in summiting alpine peaks. Today, Doug discusses what climbing was really like in the early days of the sport, as well as the early days of Salt Lake City, talking about what the climbing community of the late 70s and 80s was like, with key figures that were pushing grades and new route development to new heights, along with the passions that drove Doug to follow a career that truly exemplified the things he most believed in. Yeah, so... You know, fortunately, I was born in Salt Lake City, and the access to the outdoors in Salt Lake is, you know, it's sort of like living in a resort area in some ways because our ski resorts and the mountains are so accessible here. And also, my my parents had a place up at Flaming Gorge Reservoir, which is near Dutch John, Utah. So, you know, we spent a ton of time as kids, you know, just out in the outdoors all the time whether it was, uh, you know, hiking, running, camping, fishing, <laughs> you know, all that stuff. So, and obviously we, video games and that kind of stuff didn't exist when I grew up. So, you know, we basically were constantly just out entertaining ourselves out in the, you know, building forts or whatever we were doing, you know, outside. So lots of memories, um, growing up, you know, spending lots of time outdoors, um, just cruising around in the wilderness, really. Here you have a pretty strong passion for climbing uh, that started at a very young age. Where did that passion come from? And what are some of your earliest climbing memories? Uh, you know, I it was weird. I got introduced to climbing by a friend of mine that I actually met at Flaming Gorge. He, he was from uh, Blackfoot, Idaho. And his family happened to be at Flaming Gorge and friends of friends, you know, knew my parents or something like that. I can't remember the exact details, but his father had done some early, you know, mountaineering in the Tetons. And uh, I had done, you know, King's Peak, which is the highest peak in Utah. I think we were 11 years old and we did it as Boy Scouts. And so I'd kind of been exposed. It's a hike. It's not a technical climb, but it's the highest peak in, in Utah. And when I met this guy at, at Flaming Gorge, he talked to me about the Tetons and I was like, sure. You know, I was 12 years old at the time and I was like, yeah, I'm game. You know, I'll, I'll come up there. So I took a train, um, from Salt Lake city an Amtrak train, it's kind of funny to Pocatello. And he picked me up. He's a couple of years older than me, but at that time you could drive in Idaho if you had a farm at 14 and then we, you know, we drove up to the Tetons. So 
my first experiences were really more mountaineering style climbing. I mean, easy rock climbing, but just getting to the top of the mountain. So, you know, we spent quite a few years just climbing in the Tetons as kids. And um, it was a great experience. I mean, obviously back in the, you know, in the seventies, there weren't many people around in the Tetons. So it was a, it was a cool experience. And obviously we didn't have guides or any of that stuff. So we just kind of figured it all out on our own. How old were you when, when you started doing that? Uh, I was 12. So, you know, I think we climbed the, the, that summer when I was 12, we climbed the Grand Teton and we went with some kind of random guy. I don't really know what his affiliation was with these guys. And he kind of seemed like he knew what he was doing, but, um, you know, we, (laughs) we just basically, we were little kids, right? So we just had some one, one inch webbing, you know, around our waists and we had, uh, you know, mountain boots and these like crappy little, um, tents. I remember the tents always seemed to leak and there's only really, I mean, off the summit of the Grand Teton, there were two rappels. So it wasn't that big of a deal. So it was just kind of funny, you know, (laughs) that's, that's, we were just scrambling around. So it didn't quite make sense until I started climbing in Little Cottonwood Canyon, which is really close to where I grew up. At such a young age, getting into something like that, I would imagine it'd be pretty easy to get yourself uh, into trouble or in a, into a situation that might be a little tricky. Do you have any stories of of uh, situations that, that you might have ended up in? Oh, I mean, I think, you know, you're always on the verge of of getting yourself in trouble, not so much in the, the mountaineering sense. I mean, I do remember being on top of Mount Owen and the weather was kind of closing down. I mean, typical, you know, afternoon thunder showers and we had climbed a route on Mount Owens. And when we were at the top, you know, my friend's hair was kind of standing up um, because of the static electricity. And we're damn lucky that we didn't kill, didn't get killed um, by a lightning strike. That's for sure. But, you know, as far as technical climbing, um, you know, we learned, we, we hired this guy when I was a little bit older um, named Jim Dockery, who was a famous uh, kind of local climber guy. He had done a lot in the Wind Rivers, like um, on Mount Hooker and stuff like that. He was pretty hard. And we took a couple courses from him and he kind of introduced us to like what I would consider real climbing. And, um, you know, of course, you know, protection and all that stuff. But the reality is, is at that point in time, we were really only climbing like five, six, five, seven, you know, I don't even, maybe we did like the, there's a local called the green a, I I remember doing that at a really young age, but you know, there was always the risk, you know, of falling and ripping the gear or something. But I would say we were relatively conservative, if that makes sense. Like, you know, we were, we were kind of climbing the natural lines and, and, you know, using just the normal protection at that time. I mean, cams didn't exist. So we were using, we called them chalks, but they were like hexcentrics and stoppers and, and, you know, kind of keeping it within the, you know, safety zone, so to speak. All that stuff happened when I was a little bit older, not so much when I was younger, right? Like when we started kind of pushing the limits and soloing and all that kind of stuff. I mean, and I've, I've had a couple accidents, which I feel pretty, you know, fortunate to believe to be alive, um, you know, because I've had a couple accidents over the years, but not too bad statistically considering how much I've climbed. Were you saying in the beginning that you you could go over some of those stories of kind of later uh, later on some of those incidents that happened? Yeah, for sure. Like you know, when I was you know I was probably in my you know early twenties, and 
we were soloing a lot um, back in that era. I mean, I, I don't know exactly why we, you know, it's funny when I think back, I don't, I don't really know the why. I mean, there's a great freedom to soloing, right? Because it allows you to just cruise around by yourself and cover a lot, a lot of terrain. I mean, there were many days, Little Cottonwood, where, you know, you'd go solo like 30 pitches and nothing super long there, but you just cover a ton of terrain. And I never soloed anything super hard. I mean, up to, you know, mid 510 or something like that. But, um, you know, I did get hurt when I was, I think I was around 25 years old and I slipped off of a route that I'd done a bunch of times and, and hit the ground. And fortunately, I, I, I don't know the exact height that I was, but I was definitely above 30 feet off the ground. So, you know, definitely high enough to get killed if, if I would have landed wrong. And, you know, that put me out for a while and it definitely made me sort of reassess, you know, my values and, and, you know, what, what climbing meant to me and how much risk I was willing to take. And, you know, I obviously haven't done a whole lot of soloing since that point. Cause you know, <laughs> it's like, you, you got to stack the odds in your favor, but, uh, you know, I was for, fortunate to have recovered, you know, fully from that. When you end up in those kinds of situations, uh, what's kind of the first thing that goes through your mind and how do you work through that? I mean, climbing is fairly calculated. And and so I think a lot of it is a, a pretty big sense of disappointment in yourself. I mean, it's basically you've let yourself down and, and uh, you know, you made a mistake and we all make mistakes, but that's typically why you have a rope, right? Because a hold can break or you misjudge something or something's wet. And in this particular case, when I fell off this route, I was soloing. Um, I didn't really take the conditions. I mean, the condition, it was a little bit icy cause it was quite cold. And, and, uh, so, you know, it was just a bad judgment call off, off, you know, I shouldn't have left the ground number one, but you know, you're, you're pretty disappointed in yourself. And then, you know, it has an impact on a, on a big chunk of your life, you know, your friends, your, you know, the, your family, et cetera. So, you know, I, I would say for me, it's just a, a learning experience. I think you have to think about that a lot in climbing. I mean, there's always a risk reward and different each time you go climbing, I think like some days, you know, you're willing to risk more because you feel better or, you know, you're kind of in the zone and other days in Canada, just a, you know, a few weeks ago. And, and, uh, I just, I just wasn't psyched on this thing. And I just altered, you know, I opted to do a much easier line just because I didn't feel good about it. And I, I think you just have to lose that stuff, you know, that internal internal voice. You mentioned that the climbing community in Salt Lake in the late 70s and 80s was was very different than it is now. What was it like back then? And how has the change of kind of the evolution of this the, the sport uh, affected it to what it is today? I mean, I think, you know, Salt Lake, we were in some ways, I mean, jokingly, we were kind of a, a bunch of hillbillies, right? Like we I mean, a lot of us had gone to Yosemite and places like that. I mean, Yosemite was, for most of us, was kind of the holy grail of of the places that you wanted to go um, and kind of, you know, prove yourself, you know, not to the world, but just, you know, say, oh, I want to go do the Nose or the Salathe or Astro Man or, or routes like that were kind of big on the list. But, you know, during that that era, it was a really tight community. I mean, it was a bunch of fairly esoteric people, to be honest, but there was a cool kind of mentorship. Like I was super fortunate to be mentored by, you know, guys like Mug Stump, um, who became a really good friend of mine. I mean, Conrad Anchor and Seshaw, Ken and Harvey, myself were, were all basically mentored by Mug Stump. And, 
you know, he kind of opened up our mind to a whole new world that, you know, you'd seen in pictures and stuff like that, like the Himalayas or Alaska or Antarctica and stuff. But, you know, he, he was like the real deal. And, you know, he became a great friend and a great mentor. And, you know, simultaneously, we sort of introduced mugs into the world of sport climbing, which, you know, he'd been more of an alpinist rock climber, but he didn't really understand sport climbing. So it was kind of nice in that era to sort of give back to mugs on some level, you know, because at that point we were all climbing 512 plus or 513 and our friends that were really good were breaking the 514, you know, in the, you know, that was more in the nineties, but, you know, back in the seventies and eighties, it was a, it was a pretty tight knit group, but you know, one thing that I, that was interesting is bouldering was super popular back then, um, especially in little cottonwood at the, the main gate bouldering area. But bouldering was thriving back then. And, you know, you'd be up there doing sessions with a, a whole, you know, crew of people that, you know, the local crew, and it was a fun community back then. And there was a group, um, there's a club in, in the Wasatch, you know, mountains called the Wasatch mountain club. And, and I think they're predominantly more of a hiking club, but we did this thing on Thursday nights called burgers and beers. And that was up in uh, storm mountain that's where I met a lot of these guys. And, you know, I, I got kind of turned on to the burgers and beers things when I was about 14, which was awesome because we could go up and drink beers, you know, with the older climbers and, and burgers. And we would just, uh, you know, boulder around. No, no one, there's not like great climbing right there, but it was more of a social thing. And there were also lots of slideshows and presentations of people's adventures back then. And, you know, a lot of them happened up at the University of Utah or some, you know, some community place. But, um, and even the local climb ups like Hollybar Mountaineering or Timberland Sports. I mean, it was it was a cool little uh, you know hub of I would say for the most part, most, as a general rule, the the people were pretty eccentric. And you know, unfortunately, during that era, there were basically no females climbing. I remember any women climbing in that era? I mean, there was a a friend of mine, Dana Hauser, dated a girl named Eve. I think her name was. Eve tree actually is a real name, but she was like really the first woman climber that I ever, you know, met. And we were just like, Whoa, I didn't even know girls climbed, you know, it was just, it was kind of weird. It was predominantly male back then. Why do you think that was? And, and kind of, how did that change over time? You know, I I really don't know because I've always, you know, I was really involved in, in skiing competitively as a kid. And there were always lots of, you know, women involved in any sports we did in school. I mean, there was always a, you know, women involved and it was awesome, but I don't know why there there weren't many women climbing back then. I, I Maybe it was just the population was so small and for whatever reason, it just uh, seemed more accessible to guys. But obviously over time, I mean, I, I think where I really saw the biggest change was when in 19, I can't remember the exact year, sorry, but it was around 1988, I believe. And somewhere in that zone and the, you know, Snowbird put on a world cup. Um, I, I guess it was a world cup, at least that's what they called it or some kind of climbing championship. And it was a bunch of Europeans came over. And at that point I was working at international mountain equipment and, uh, you know, we were just learning about sport climbing and starting to bolt roots and, and, you know, actually bolt some roots on rappel. And I think having the Europeans come over and there was a pretty big contingent of European women that were amazing climbers like Catherine Desteville and, uh, you know, Lynn Hill was there obviously and a bunch of people. And I think it, 
I, I think that kind of broke down some barriers around our areas that, wow, you know, these, these super strong, you know, motivated athletic women are, I, I think they inspired a, a pretty big group of people during that time. And that, that's not to say that there weren't women climbing back in the 70s. It's in Salt Lake in particular, I just don't remember, you know, hardly any women climbers. So when you first started, you mentioned the importance of having a mentor in getting into the sport. Um, how, how did your mindset kind of shift the more you got into climbing in terms of what you wanted to do with your career? And, and when did you really make that realization that this is what you wanted to focus on, not just as a uh, personal hobby, but also a profession? Yeah. I mean, I wish that I had like a master plan, right? Like, I mean, I had plenty of friends that wanted to be doctors or lawyers and, and they had a plan or engineers, et cetera. And I think for me, the whole thing happened organically, um, which is, you know, in some ways I feel super lucky that I was able to, you know, be really involved in the climbing community, um, you know, putting up a fair amount of roots and, you know, helping with like mixed climbing guidebooks and all that kind of stuff and, you know, helping sort of with the sport. And then, you know, I, I guess, you know, during that era, I, you know, one way to make money as a climber was guiding. So I did a fair amount of guiding and then that's sort of also, I, I, there were some opportunities that would pop up where I would get, you know, jobs for various rigging jobs for films or Hollywood films or documentaries or whatever. And all that stuff kind of morphed together between kind of working in the, in the climbing shop and then, you know, doing some guiding and then doing some, uh, you know, rigging for film work. And then, you know, it was actually a pretty damn good lifestyle to be honest, because I mean, we made okay money. We had a lot of free time. We were able to climb all the time and at least, you know, have enough money to go to Yosemite, put up roots. And, you know, it was a, it was a pretty, um, I feel super fortunate that I had that amount of time. Like I was a little different than a lot of folks. Cause I was never really like a full time climber. I mean, I would climb like four days a week, but I always had a job and I was always working, doing different things. I mean, that's just sort of my nature, but, um, you know, I was able, I was able to kind of piece it together. And then, you know, Peter Metcalf, who's the founder of black diamond, obviously black diamond came out of Chenard equipment. You know, I kind of would bump into Peter periodically. And then he invited me out to Ventura, you know, it must've been around 1990 and, you know, asked me to come and and work for Black Diamond, which was a real honor at that point, to be honest, like to be even jokingly somewhat of a hillbilly from Salt Lake. And I'm not saying our community was super insulated, but we were, you know, like I said, we climbed in Yosemite and Zion and places like that, but we weren't like, you know, besides mugs, we weren't like big, you know, uh, worldly type climbers. And, you know, Chenard equipment was sort of the pinnacle of, of climbing that and a couple of European brands. And so, I'd never, I'd been to California, obviously on vacations with the family. But, um, when I went to Ventura, it, to be honest, like I was just like kind of blown away. It's like, how can a climbing company exist in Ventura? Because climbing is so far away. You know, I was so spoiled with having access in the Wasatch here. You know, Metcalf talked to me because I said, look, I I'm managing a climbing shop and I've got a rigging job and a guide service. And you're offering me like 11 bucks an hour to move to California. Like it just doesn't make sense. But Peter, you know, he's a pretty good sales guy in contact. And about a year later, um, 
Black Diamond had decided that they were going to move to Salt Lake City. And when people, I was like, yeah, you know, I believe in your vision. I believe in your company and, and it makes sense to sign on. So I actually moved to Ventura. I can't remember the exact amount of there, just a month knowing that, you know, the company was going to move to Salt Lake. So at that point, you know, Black Diamond was a pretty small company in the big scheme of things. How long were you in Ventura before you ended up moving back to Salt Lake City, by the way? Uh, I was there. My first tour in Ventura was about six months. So, you know, and that's like I said, I didn't sign on with Black Diamond until Peter had told me they were going to move because I just I couldn't see it as a climber of living in Ventura. Like it's not sustainable there. There's just not enough climbing around there. It's too much driving. When I was there, I would drive almost every single weekend, um, you know, I'd, I'd work and leave Black Diamond at like four o'clock and I'd drive to Yosemite and I would meet my friend Conrad Anchor and we would go climbing, you know, whether we were doing the nose in a day or half dome or whatever we were doing. And after about, you know, six or eight weeks of that in a row, I was like, man, this is exhausting. Like there's way too much driving. Um, you know, it's just not sustainable. So, I, th- I think the best thing that ever happened to Black Diamond was moving out of Ventura to Salt Lake City. I'd love to hear a little bit about what it was like to be a part of such a, uh, you know, at the time, small climbing startup that grew to, you know, what it is today. What was it like in that small team? And, and what were the early days of, of Black Diamond like when you first got started? Well, you know, really intimidating and you know, I was like a reasonably accomplished climber at that point in time. You know, I mean, on the technical side, I was climbing 513 and on the, you know, I'd done the nose in a day with Conrad and we'd done, you know, multiple, you know, lots of ascents of El Cap and done a lot of climbing in Zion at that point and and whatnot. But, you know, I, I actually, at first I was just super intimidated by the team because, you know, Johnny Woodward, who was arguably one of the best rock climbers in the world worked there. You know, Alex Lowe, arguably one of the best <laughs> alpinists in the world at that time. Um, and on down the line, it was pretty intimidating at first, but then, you know, obviously once you integrate and get to know people and become part of the team, you know, it started to feel comfortable, but I would call it really familial at that time. I mean, it, it was definitely felt like a family business and, you know, Peter's vision and mission for the company, I thought were really sound. You know, he really believed in, you know, protecting access for the, um, you know, wild places that we climb and we want to keep those places protected. And, and, you know, we wanted to innovate, um, climbing gear and make climbing safer and allow people to, you know, push their limits. And the beauty is the company, as far as the vision of the company, it really hasn't changed. I mean, there's more climbers and we make more gear and different types of gear, but, at the end of the day, you know, the vision and mission of the company really hasn't changed. How does that vision and mission align with your personal vision and mission and what you've always wanted to do and to contribute to the sport? Yeah, I mean, I think my, you know, I think, uh, I don't want this to sound like some silly marketing slogan, but I, I do believe that, you know, people, if you have something outside of work and family that, and it can be silly. Like I, I used to laugh, like sometimes if I was working on a project, a rock climbing project, whatever grade, doesn't really matter. But, you know, you, this, the sense of accomplishment, even though it's fairly irrelevant in the big scheme of things, I think on some level it makes you a more balanced person, right? Because uh, there's, there's something, you know, work is 
can be pretty consuming for a lot of people and family can be consuming as well. But just to have something that, you know, motivates you, you know, intrinsically and pushes you, you know, whether it's mentally and physically, I just think it it really helps your psyche and makes you a, a balanced person. So, you know, I've always tried to kind of bring that philosophy into Black Diamond. And I also like, I was explaining this to some newer employees at BD, but, but just the thought of alpinism, you know, just... I, we've always viewed, and and I think a lot of people misunderstand what what BD means by alpinist. You know, by equipment for alpinism is alpinism is really more of a philosophy in the way you approach things, and it's basically doing the most with the least, right? And for me, that's really important. Like, you know, I, I kind of have <laughs> I I kind of have dual ethics here because I <laughs> it's kind of funny. I think when you're in the mountains, you know, you should and you're putting up a new route, you should do it in the most minimalistic fashion that you can and, you know, kind of leave no trace, no trace. But I also believe that if you're going to put up a route that is going to be repeated a lot, it's kind of your responsibility to make it safe and you're not just putting it up for yourself. So that's just my own, you know, kind of personal ethics, but I I pretty much, you know, hold to that line. Like if, if you're, putting up a route like in little cottonwood that you know is going to get repeated hundreds of times you know you kind of owe it to the the community to make sure it's safe and the anchors are good and etc cetera, etc cetera, you know i don't want to spin off too much in ethics because i also believe that if you put up a route ground up you know you should allow people to experience it the same way you put it up but, but i believe if you wrap bolt something you should make it safe but that's just me that's just my you know, kind of, sorry, I'm spinning off on this, but. I know that that is, you know, such an important thing in, in the climbing world and really in outdoor recreation in general, um, especially, you know, the, the LNT principle of, of leave no trace. Um, and that's so strongly built into the kind of ethics of everyone who cares about the outdoors, um, especially as a company with, uh, with everything you've done with Black Diamond. How has the, the company really embraced that mindset and the, um, kind of the the positive mission of of what uh, what the company hopes to accomplish uh, as well. Well, you know, there's a there's multifacets to that, right? Like, I mean, you have to be a little careful when you talk to us about you know pure environmental because we're making commercial products, right? And and we have to do it in the most um, environmentally friendly way we possibly can. There there's certain things that aren't that great, right? Like when you anodize the anodization process and we, you know, we use closed loop water, you know, anodization, but you know, we're, we're still consuming things. So it it gets a little, it's philosophically, it gets a little tough, but I think, you know, we make, I, I guess what I can feel good about is we make products that last a long, long time, right? So if you buy a set of Camelots from us, unless you're someone like Conrad or, you know, friends of mine that, that climb in Yosemite or the desert nonstop, but the desert's a lot easier on cams than the, than Yosemite or places with harder rock. But, you know, we, we make really durable, long lasting products that, um, are not really disposable. Right. So, you know, people do cycle through rock shoes and they do cycle through ropes and to a certain degree webbing, but a lot of the stuff that we produce, you know, lasts a long time. So, I, I think in some ways from an environmental point of view, you know, if you make really you know products with longevity environmentally, it's a lot better stance. I, I hope that makes sense. 
Absolutely. That, that makes a ton of sense. Um, and kind of as, um, as the kind of the sport itself has grown and changed, has that mindset also changed in terms of the kind of the climbing industry uh, and the way that companies in that industry have, have um, kind of produced their products or has that always been a, a pretty um, established mindset from the beginning? I mean, I would say as a general rule, the the tenant within most of the climbing manufacturers, you know, I think people, you know, whether it's Petzl or BDS, et cetera, I mean, we make products that last, you know, I mean, certainly if you're sport climbing all the time, you can wear through carabiners, you know, and, and stuff like that. But as a general rule, you know, you should be able to get, you know, if you're really hardcore climber, you should be able to get a couple of years out of a harness and, you know, you might cycle through ropes every year and, and stuff like that. But as a general rule, it's, it's fairly, you know, low impact in the big scheme of things. I think it's funny. I've kind of shifted my, I, I'm super busy at work, so I don't have as much to climb. And I pretty much climbed from when I was 12 years old till I was about 45, like nonstop. So I, I don't climb as much as I used to, for sure. I mean, I still get out, but um, I noticed one of the biggest impacts I think that climbers have is how much they drive, believe it or not. There, there's a hell of a lot of driving and climbing. So I think you have to be a little careful as a climber, you know, you know, you, you have to kind of look at your own footprint of, of how much you're actually traveling to, to destinations. That's very true. It's something that I don't think uh, everyone really realizes all the time. Um, but one of the things that uh, that I know is you know, was a huge reason why you got into the industry is because of your passion for climbing. Has it has it been tough to balance both uh, the work commitments that you've had ever since you started, as as well as make sure making sure you have that time to to get outside and, and climb? And um, how has uh, kind of that balance uh, been for you? I would say, you know, the balance for me, I mean, it changes over time, right? Because your priorities are different. I mean, I, you know, Metcalf always allowed me to climb as much as I needed to. I, I'm not one of those Himalayan guys. I mean, I spent a fair amount of time, like tons of time climbing in Europe and in the Canadian Rockies and a little bit in Alaska. I mean, I did like, you know, I've done like six trips to Alaska, but, uh, you know, I would say, you know, if you're going to be like a Himalayan climber or someone that wants to have months off, it's not really possible to do that working at Black Diamond. That The job's just too intense. I mean, there's too much stuff going on. So I think if you're going to be one of those type of climbers, you need to be more independently wealthy or, you know, have a job that has a ton of flexibility that you can start and stop. But I think as a rock climber or more of an ice climber, or wall climber, boulder, or those time of, you know, the work life balance is, is pretty darn good, especially now with the advent of gyms. I mean, we have a moon board at BD, we have a boulder, bouldering wall and a tread wall, you know, momentum has an amazing gym that's two miles from here. So, you know, if you want to be a rock climber, it's pretty easy to balance the, you know, the work life balance. The one thing that you may miss out on is, you know, having really big extended trips, but I think that's the same with any profession, right? Like you're always going to have to balance time for money. And I, I think over time for me personally, like I spent, I took a, a fair time off and chose time over money for 
a couple decades. And, uh, you know, since you have to retire at some point, I mean, I have no problem buckling down now and, and working a lot more than I did when I was, you know, I'm kind of glad I did it that way versus the opposite. Right. <laughs> but, you know, everyone has a different path to that, but, you know, I definitely work more now than I, than I did when I was, you know, 30, but that's okay. I mean, I made that choice back then. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's, that's very true. And as time has changed and as, um, uh, you know, as kind of the progression of your career has, has gone on, what things have become more important and less important to you? I would say, you know, I mean, I, I've always wanted BD to succeed. I mean, and succeeding for me at BD isn't always monetary, right? Like we're going to grow the business and it's important for Black Diamond to grow as a business um, just because people want raises and, you know, you want to invest in things. And so it's really important for any business to grow just to stay healthy. So, but you know, I, I also want Black Diamond to still be able to affect people positively, you know, like to introduce them to the sport of climbing or get them outdoors. I mean, we sell a lot of products for hiking or trail running or mountain running or backcountry skiing as well. So, you know, we talked a lot about climbing, but there's a lot of uh, activities that, um, you know, we promote. And, you know, I think it's just I can be somewhat of a zealot behind that because I believe it's important. It's a healthy lifestyle. And I think it makes people both mentally and physically more healthy if they get out and, and do things and experience the experience nature and be involved with it and want to protect it and, you know, use it. So, you know, I, I think that still holds true today. I mean, you see it through a, a slightly different lens as you get older, but uh, a friend of mine, <laughs> that I've climbed with a lot in Canada. He, uh, he's a phenomenal ice climber, but he told me one time, you know, when he was younger, it was just all about the climbing and all he cared about was the climbing. But now that he's gotten older, it's the whole experience. It's the approach, it's the climbing, it's the descent, it's who you're with. And, you know, I think that experience over time, you know, becomes more, um, you, you're not so focused on maybe the performance side of, of whatever activity you're just kind of embracing the whole thing. But, you know, I may be seeing it through a slightly different angle. That's maybe more goal oriented, right? Like I want to do the nose in X amount of hours. I mean, kind of the Alex Honnold sort of style, if that makes sense. Like he's obviously had some really specific goals or Tommy Caldwell, you know, a lot of climbers are like that. Like they have really specific goals. And I think as you, as you travel through it, I think you kind of almost go full circle to back to where you're enjoying it almost the same way that you did when you started. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but. Absolutely. No, it, it definitely does. Um, and as kind of, as things have changed and, you know, the, the more that, um, uh, that happens in the sport, uh, if you could go back and, and tell yourself one thing, uh, when you were first getting started in climbing, uh, one bit of advice, uh, that would have helped, what do you think that that advice would be? Uh, I mean, I think the most critical thing in climbing is, is your partners. <laughs> I, I, you have to be really careful, the partners that you pick. Um, and they typically become lifelong friends and, you know, I've had some great partners, over the years. And I cherish that. And unfortunately I've lost, you know, quite a few really good friends of mine have, have passed away due to climbing accidents. They're, they're predominantly snow related or crevasse or Serac, you know, type 
related accidents or avalanche type things. But, you know, I think, I, I think the, the most important thing is the person you're sharing that time with because it's uh, it's special time you know you create a different bond with the people that you're out there with because you're you know I don't want to sound overly dramatic but in a lot of ways I mean you are trusting your life to that partner and you know I guess it's the same thing when you're driving but that's you know it's pretty basic right um, it's just you know it's a different experience and I think I, I think that you know you should always uh, you know not forget about that how how critical that partner is to you. That's so true. And there's so many parallels between climbing and everything else that we experience in life. What are some of the things that climbing has taught you that have transcended the actual sport and you've been able to bring those back into business and life and leadership? Yeah, I would say, you know, I mean, one thing in climbing is you have to be really organized, right? So you, I mean, typically you have an objective, like I want to go do, I want to do this and this is how I'm going to accomplish it. And and there's kind of short-term, mid-term, and long-term objectives in climbing. For most people that are really into it, right? Like they may say, yeah, I want to I want to learn how to rock climb at this level because I want to go do this, right? Like I want to be able to climb. I'm make, making something up, but, you know, a goal of mine, you know, it's probably passed at this point, but, you know, to do that Skinner route on the Trango Tower would be great. But, you know, you would have to say, okay, I need to get some altitude experience. I got to be be able to climb, you know, 513 or 513 plus, you know, in the mountains so that I can climb 511 at 20,000 feet. You know what I mean? So you kind of have to plan all that stuff out because climbing is a lot of work. And I think it, it actually teaches you a really, you know, you have to be quite organized and you have to set goals and to achieve those goals, you know, you have to put the time in. And so I think that applies almost directly to, you know, running our business, like you also have to be realistic and humble, right? Like you could say, um, you know, we want to grow this category or invent this thing, but you know, there's a lot of humility in climbing. And I think it's the same thing in business. Um, you know, cause in, for what we do, the consumer always votes, right? Like if they like our product or not. So, you know, <laughs> we, we, we have to be humble every single day. And I think climbing also teaches you a lot about humility because you never, you know, it's like you, you have the opportunity to pass through or touch something. You, there, there's no, you know, you don't conquer or win ever in climbing. It's all just a process, you know, of of passing through a, a place and time and and having that experience. It's not like there's a real score to it. Does that does that make sense? <laughs> Absolutely. No, that's that's so true. And I know that both in climbing and in in business, we can plan and strategize as much as we want, but, but sometimes things do go wrong and, and we have to react accordingly. Uh, do you have any examples or stories that you could share of, of times when something went wrong and, and how did you, uh, handle that? You mean climbing wise or, or work wise? Uh, it could be both. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you always make mistakes climbing, right? Like, I mean, if you're doing big routes, you get off route and you have to figure out how to get back on and, you know, you, I think you're constantly adjusting, you know, like you might screw up a sequence and you use too much energy on a harder sport route, or, you know, you have to pick the best line on big, you know, long routes. And, you know, so I think, I think it's a constant evaluation of where you are and adjusting. And I think, you know, to be successful in business, um, you constantly have to be 
realistic, right, of where you are and what you can do and what resource you have. And I think of resource like energy, right? Like, like you have to conserve energy all the way through a climb, you know, to get to the top. Right. And, and to a certain degree, I think it's the same in business. Like you don't want to bet the ranch on one thing. And honestly, that's one reason why black diamonds much more diversified than some other companies, because if we have a really bad winter, it's not going to take us down. We're not going to have to lay off 20 people, right? Just because it was a bad winter in North America, because if the winter's bad, well, people will go climbing or they'll buy trekking poles or maybe they buy headlamps or, you know, they buy, you know, climb bouldering sportswear or whatever. And so, you know, I think just that, um, you know, reality check all the time, I think is the most critical thing. And just being honest and realistic about, you know, where you are, right? I mean, to me, that's that's the most critical thing in, in business and climbing. At the end of the day, both in climbing and your work with Black Diamond, what do you want your impact and your legacy to be on the sport and the company? <laughs> well, I, it's I'm kind of one of I'm fairly low key, right? Like I'm kind of an undercover guy. Um, you know, I I think for me, like the most critical thing for me is succession planning because I, I you know, Peter passed the company on to. You know, the company changed and in some ways I couldn't imagine working at BD without Peter here, right? Because he was the founder for the company. But, you know, I've been working for a while now without Peter here. And, you know, for me, it's just continuing the brand, right? Like we 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 want to stay true to who we are. We still want to build the best climbing equipment in the world and the best backcountry ski equipment and, you know, the best outdoor equipment for people to you know, enhance their lives. And I, I think in my small way, if I can make that impact, like, you know, we just launched uh, new rock shoes and I'm really proud of that project because, you know, we came into a fairly crowded space with a different vision and point of view. And we were able to bring, you know, engineered knit um, shoes to the market, you know, for that, that indoor climber, that that's where most of the growth is. And I think that, you know, I think introducing people to the sport, um, cause it's just such an awesome activity and on a lot of levels, it's, it's problem solving. It requires strength and, and, uh, balance and, you know, poise and it, it, it's just a, it's a complete package. So I think just like I embrace the fact that there's more people doing it and it climbing's climbing for me. Like it doesn't really matter if you're climbing in a gym or bouldering or crack climbing or, you know, whatever you're doing. So I, you know, my legacy would just be to hope to just help move the sport, you know, forward a little bit. Like I think, you know, back in the day, I, I can't even remember what year it was. It was in the nineties. Conrad and I decided to do four walls in Zion in a day. And and we kind of got that inspiration from Peter Croft and John Backer, who did Half Dome and the Nose in a day. And we're like, you know, I, I think each generation needs to take it to the next level, right? And I don't mean that so much on the performance side, but maybe it, it, performance is part of it. But I think it's just each generation just needs to pass that on. And I just hope that, you know, my generation and impact can be felt. I, I don't need necessarily need credit for it. I mean, I, th I think it just is, which, which sounds silly, but what are your thoughts on, on what the sport and what the climbing industry will, will look like in the future? Well, I think that I, 
I think that gyms will continue to grow. Um, and it's mainly because of access. There's a lot of urban areas that we're really fortunate in Salt Lake City that we have rock climbing so close and we also have great gyms. So you can climb pretty much, you know, seven days a week if you want to, whether inside or outside, weather dependent, but it allows you to experience the sport all the time. And I think that, I think the change that you'll see is it's climbing's already skewed to where within the gyms, it's like 50, 50 male, female, and it's also skewing younger, which I think is great because young kids naturally know how to climb. They just need the uh, facility to do it. So I think that it will continue to grow that way. And, you know, a, a small percentage of those people will, will take it to different levels where they go out and, you know, they may, they may learn how to sport climb as a kid or boulder as a kid, but, you know, maybe when they get to college, they go out, you know, they outside and then a friend gets them into ice climbing or mountaineering or alpine climbing. And maybe when they're 35 or 40 or 50, they go to the Himalayas. I mean, I, I, I think there are so many facets of climbing that, you know, it isn't just a, a, a singular thing. It, it becomes sort of a, a full-on lifestyle. And I think over time, as people get exposed at, at younger ages, it will just be something that it's a life sport for them. And there's, there's lots of different ways to, to, you know, engage with it. And it, 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 it will all start, I think, in the future in the gym. I mean, we're already seeing that, but most people will be introduced you know, to climbing at a birthday party or in some type of uh, indoor facility. Thanks for listening to another episode of Inside the Adventure. That was the story of Doug Heinrich, the vice president of product at Black Diamond, a company that, as some people might not know, was actually started by the same founder who started Patagonia, a guy named Yervon, who, after he placed Black Diamond in Chapter 11 bankruptcy, he handed the company off to one of its former employees, Peter Metcalf, who built the company from what it was then to what it is today, along with incredible people like the help of Doug Heinrich. <laughs>